and then we will uh, put this up here and down. All right, so we're looking at lesson seven this evening. And um, we are have uh, finished the history section of our course and covered that, I think, pretty thoroughly um, over the last uh, six weeks, six and a half weeks. And we want to talk about the parties. We started on the parties last time, Jewish diversity. Remember, we said that we could think of uh, two types of Judaism in a sense, Samaritanism and real Judaism. Uh, though it, you could argue that the Samaritans weren't really Jews, but of course they claim to be. And uh, we talked last week, I think, about the fact that the Samaritans come into being because of the Assyrians taking over the 10 northern tribes, Israel, after the division of the kingdom in 722 BC, and carrying those uh, residents, many of them, uh, many of the more wealthy uh, people who had talents and crafts and artisans, uh, uh, nobility back into Assyria, retrans retransplanting them. <clears throat> and we don't know, um, we don't know what actually um, happened to those people. That is, we don't really have any good historical records uh, as we do uh, Judah when it goes into captivity with Babylon. We sort of know that who, who came back and some stayed, but we don't have a lot of information. The uh, Samaritans claim that, you know, there were some people from the Northern Kingdom who were left and uh, they claim that they're descended from those people in the North. But of course, uh, what happened was that uh, there was a resettlement of these people. Uh, and they adopted, as we said last time, I think a syncretistic form of religion. They, they adopted uh, worship of Yahweh um, with other, uh, with their pagan religions that they brought in from Assyria. So um, they intermarry with the Jews and uh, that were there, and we have the Samaritans as their descendants. As I said, we didn't know when the split took place exactly, but um, they uh, were prevented from building a temple um, initially, um, but then they were allowed to, uh, they, they themselves, they, they, they tried, they wanted to help in building the temple of Zerubbabel when he comes back, but uh, because of their deviations from Judaism, the Jews who came back did not allow them to participate. And uh, therefore they opposed the building of the temple. They tried to get it stopped and hindered it and did hinder it. And then tried to stop the building of the walls later under Nehemiah. And as we said, they did build a temple eventually um, in the, um, uh, did build a temple eventually at the time of Alexander the Great. 
this is uh, this is what happened according to the Bible, how they uh, actually uh, came into being. The scriptures say in 2 Kings 17 that the people of Israel and those 10 northern tribes were taken into exile into Assyria. And then the Assyrian king brought in people from Babylon, uh, Kutha, Abba, and so forth. And they settled in the towns of the Samaritans replaced Israelites. They took over Samaria and its towns. When they first lived there, they didn't worship the Lord, that is Yahweh. So he sent lions among them. They killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of their country requires. Now, remember, that's a pagan idea, of course, that uh, every area, every people have gods and it's polytheism. There's, you know, there's no one God. And so the king, according to this, uh, see, according to the report he gets, as the people he has brought into, uh, into the land, uh, Palestine there, former Israel, uh, they don't know this God of the land there, who is the God around there. And he sent lions among them or killing them off. They don't know what he requires. So the king of Assyria gave this order, have one of your priests you took captive from Samaria, go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settle, and they set them up in the shrines, set them up in the shrines, the people of Samaria, had made it high places, at the high places. They worshiped the Lord. They worshiped Yahweh, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of nations from which they had been brought. And that's what we were talking about with this syncretistic combining of these various religious elements. Now we're talking about this area right here Samaria. There is a city of Samaria, but right there you can see, if you see Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, well, I messed up there, didn't I? I have to go over here. I'm sorry about that. Let me do a little housekeeping here. And uh, I'll get that pointer up to snuff. Uh, and I will bring this back up here if I can. Okay. So here is uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, two mountains facing each other with Shechem, that's Old Testament Shechem, right there between the mountains. And this is what that looks, uh, well, um, this is what that looks like, or here's, um, let me see if I can find, I, don't, I guess I thought I had a, a video there, but I'll, I'll show you it later. I'll show you that uh, thing there. Um, so um, let me go back here to our page here. Um, so he said that uh, they built their own temple 
uh, on Mount Gerizim uh, here, Mount Gerizim here. I'll show you a picture of that in a moment. And um, they, um, uh, at, because they were kind of rejected, they were rejected by the Jews. Uh, they surmounted, they, then when the Seleucids came in, you remember Syria came in uh, and imposed upon uh, Judah, uh, conquered Judah and all that. Then uh, after Alexander the Great, uh, they sided with the Seleucids. The Sumerians didn't side with the Jews. They sided with the Seleucids, the Syrians, in the Maccabean Revolt. So the Maccabees, remember we talked about that revolt, and they sided with the, the Maccabees. And ultimately, the Maccabees reconquered their territory. That's what I was trying to show here. This is that same sort of map where, remember we saw that the Maccabean revolt starts with Maccabeus, the priest, the father of the five sons. And then uh, uh, Judas uh, takes over and he captures an area here. And then as other sons come along, uh, Jonathan, and then Simon, and then his son, John Hyrcanus, he captures all this territory. And this green here of Samaria and Idumea that we've talked about, Samaria, Idumea, that was, con that was conquered by John Hyrcanus. And uh, if you remember, he required the Idumeans to be circumcised. Now the Samaritans were already circumcised because they think of themselves as, as Real, real Jews as the descendants of those Old Testament tribes, but he compelled the Samaritans to be, uh, the Idumeans to be circumcised. And that's where Herod the Great comes into the picture. Remember there. So uh, John Hyrcanus, they built that temple in the time of Alexander the Great, but John Hyrcanus is 128. So in 128 BC, John Hyrcanus destroys their temple here they built. Now, just keep thinking about the animosity that we're going to talk about between the Jews and the Samaritans in the New Testament. And, uh, you know, you can see right there, the Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple in 128 BC. So that's a source of conflict right there. Uh, then we see the Samaritans believe that they are descendants of a faithful nucleus of ancient Israel, the 10 northern tribes. They accepted only the Pentateuch as their Bible and preserved their own independent, their text independent of the Jews. They put in some changes to support Samaritan theology. Uh, Mount Gerizim as the proper place of worship. Uh, Mount Gerizim is substituted for Mount Abel in 27.4. So what we're talking about here is that the Samaritans as a distinct group, and they're still around today. There's still uh, less than a thousand Samaritans around today, at least the last count I've heard of. Uh, they held that only the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Torah, was really inspired scripture, and they followed that. And they preserved their own text, their own copy, it's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. Now, this is a late copy, 1189, but uh, so from that earlier time, you know, from the fourth century, third century, they are preserving their own copy of the first five books. And here it is. It's really 
Hebrew, this is really Hebrew, uh, written in Samaritan, the Samaritan alphabet. So this alpha, what we see here is Hebrew, but written in a Samaritan alphabet. Now, really, it's the, what we called a long time ago, I think we talked about it, the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. That is, we talked about the fact that when the Jews went into captivity uh, and they picked up the Aramaic language, one of the things they did when they came back was use the Aramaic alphabet. And so Hebrew today, in our Hebrew Bibles and in Jerusalem and Israel, Hebrew is written not in the ancient alphabet, which this is, here's the ancient alphabet of Jews and Samaritans. It's written in the Aramaic square script. That's what we see uh, a Hebrew, Hebrew anywhere today, it's in that script. So they're preserving the same text sort of independently of the Jews of the Pentateuch called the Samaritan uh, Pentateuch. Um, and as we said here, um, they made some changes in that text to support their theology and Mount Gerizim as the proper place of worship. Uh, Mount Gerizim is substituted for Mount Ebal and Deuteronomy 27.4. Now, what does that mean? Well, when Moses uh, was, when the children of Israel were getting ready to go into the promised land, Moses gave them some commands before he died and before they entered Deuteronomy 27. And he tells them, uh, he tells them in Deuteronomy 27 that when they cross over the Jordan River into the land, the Lord your God has given you, uh, he tells them that they are to set up some stones on Mount Ebal and build an altar on Mount Ebal, Mount Ebal to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. And he tells them, don't use any stone tools, just use stones and build an altar there on Mount Ebal. So that's uh, Deuteronomy 27.4. The, Jew, the, Jew, the Israelites come in to the promised land. They come up to... Samaria there, I mean, to, yeah, Samaria. They come up to Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, and they have the blessings and cursings. I'll mention that in a minute. And, uh, and they are to uh, build an altar there. Well, in Samaritan Pentateuch, uh, the Samaritans revere Mount Gerizim, and they uh, built their, offer, their altar on uh, Mount Gerizim. They built their temple on Mount Gerizim, I should say. And so they changed, their text is changed there, you know, to reflect, hey, really Mount Gerizim is where God wanted us to build an altar and have our temple, not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans look for a Messiah called the Tahib, meaning the restorer, who would fulfill Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. Remember in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, listen, there's a prophet who's coming after me, you know, there's going to be greater me. It's really a messianic prophecy about Jesus in Deuteronomy 18, about this prophet. And so uh, they still believe, okay, that's who we're looking for, that prophet. You know, well, of course, he's come, the Messiah. 
But uh, the Jews were so separated and tolerant of each other that the Samaritan woman in John 9 could say, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So you remember the situation there um, when Jesus uh, in John chapter 4 goes up through Samaria, going up to Galilee. He said, we, we must go through Samaria. If you'll recall the story there, I know you, I'm sure you do. Uh, he goes to a well there, uh, Jacob's well, and he, um, um, he asked the woman there for a drink of water. And the woman is a little surprised at that. And she says to him, you know, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. You know, how can you ask me for a drink? And, and John says in, in John chapter four there, as a commentary, if you look at the NIV in John four, it actually has these words in parentheses. It says, for the Jews don't associate with the Samaritans. You know, that's, he's trying to explain, why would this woman say to Jesus, you know, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. What are you asking me <laughs> for a drink, man? You know, you, we don't associate with each other. We don't talk to each other. And Jesus goes on, you remember, say, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you could have asked him and he'd give you living water, living water. I remember living water is flowing water. It's fresh water. And that's something that was not very common, as common in the ancient world. Uh, they often got their water through cisterns. That is, they would dig a well and they would collect water and it wasn't always that good. They did have springs, uh, you know, artesian wells kind of sprung up. You know, there's a lot of those in Israel, you can, in the mountains there, in, in, on the hills. And, and so that's what he's talking about. He's talking about this water, this flowing water. And, you know, who wouldn't want to have that? I'd rather have that than getting water out of this well. Uh, so, um, she says, uh, uh, she says to him, have, listen, you don't have anything to draw any water, telling Jesus, uh, you know, where, where, where can you get this, where can you get this living water? You know, and she says, are you greater than Jacob? This is Jacob's well there, supposedly. It is, according to the text there. We think we know where that is today. When Pansy and I were in Israel in 2000, we went to the location there where Jacob's well was at. And we couldn't get a good look because there was a lot of nuns were around there and they were all crowded around trying to get some water out of Jacob's well. I think they sell water there maybe too. But um, so he tells her, you know, if you drink this water, you're never going to thirst. And, um, and so, um, you know, that's great. Who wouldn't want that kind of water? And uh, she says, give me some of this water. And uh, I'd love to have some of that water. And, uh, but, you know, she doesn't understand what he, what Jesus says when he says, um, you know, if you drink water from this well, you're going to be thirsty. But if you drink the water that I'm going to, I'm going to give that I can give, which is the water of salvation, of course, you'll, you'll never be thirsty again. You'll have eternal life. You'll have a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And so uh, she says, yeah, I'd like that. So Jesus then confronts 
what has to be confronted, and that is the fact that she's a sinner. A person can't get saved until they realize they're lost, and he's going to point out to her lost condition when he tells her, listen, go, to, go call your husband and come back. And, you know, she says, well, I don't have any husband. He said, you know, you're right. You've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband and so forth. That makes that doesn't make her too happy that you know he's brought this up <laughs> about her relationships, you know. So she try he try she tries to divert. Uh, she's you, if you've tried to witness to somebody, you've probably had this happen to you too. You try to witness to them from the Bible or show them something, and you know they're not obviously they're often they're not very happy about that. They don't want. They're not happy about what the text is saying about them. So they try to divert the conversation and look for a way around. And she does too. And uh, she says to him, sir, she says, uh, I can see you're a prophet, man. Hey, you're a prophet. <laughs> and then she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. And there it is. She says, uh, you know, you say uh, that you have to worship in Jerusalem, but we say you worship here on Mount Gerizim, worshiped on this mountain. So she's trying to get him involved into a controversy there. So she's bringing up this Mount Gerizim situation with Jesus. And so um, um, the the, as you can see from that conversation, this, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was not great. And uh, that's clear from, from uh, the fact that, you know, the conversation with the woman there at the woman of the well, and his disciples are asking, you know, what are you doing talking to this woman and all that kind of stuff? Uh, you probably have maybe heard this, but from what we understand that Samaritans would sometimes attack Jews who pass through Samaria. You might go up to Galilee, you might be traveling north. And so, you know, there was, there was really hard feelings. It was, you know, hundreds of years of hard feelings and history between the Jews and the Samaritans. So that makes it all the more shocking in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus makes this Samaritan the hero of his story. We call the, the story... <laughs> the good Samaritan, the good Samaritan is how we refer to it. And you remember, it's the story in Luke 10 where there's a, a, a Jewish lawyer, scribe who comes to him and I think it is and says, uh, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of tells him, you know, love your neighbor, love God and love your neighbor. And he says, well, I've done all that. You know, I've loved my neighbor, you know. And Jesus tells him this story to sort of expand upon what it means to be your neighbor. Because this, this guy is looking at this like, you know, like we might, we might say, my neighbor is my next door person. I know her very well. She's a nice person. That's my neighbor. I'm going to love my neighbor. But Jesus tells this story in Luke 10 to expand upon what that neighbor is, who that neighbor might be. And remember, he tells a story about this man, who's a Jew, obviously, who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it is downhill all the way, 20-some miles. Uh, 
And uh, he goes down there and he falls among robbers and they beat him up. They take his clothes, beat him up, and they leave him half dead, according to the text. And so, you know, a priest comes along and he passes by on one side. That would be, you know, a, a Levite, but a priest, a member of the tribe of Aaron. And then a Levite comes by and he passes by on the other side. And then the Samaritan comes by. And he bandages up his wounds and, you know, and gives him some medical treatment, places him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, provides for him with the innkeeper and, you know, says, take care of this guy. And Jesus then says, you know, what do you think? Which one of these men, the, uh, the, the Levite, the priest or the Samaritan, which one is the neighbor, which one do you think is a neighbor to this man? And this scribe, this expert in the law, he won't say, he won't even say the words, well, the Samaritan was. He just says the one who had mercy on him. <clears throat> That's all he'll say. He just can't bear to say Samaritans. So this is a shocking, shocking parable that Jesus tells. Uh, unfortunately, we can't, we don't understand the shock value because when we hear the story, the good Samaritan, we think the Samaritan's a good thing. But if I retold the story like it, like it was to, in the, uh, you know, to those people, if I said like this, that this guy got beat up on the road and he's left half for dead. And um, this, uh, uh, this deacon of a Bible church comes by and he just kind of walks by and he just walks on by. And then the pastor of the Bible church, he just, you know, he just walks on by, you know, and then, uh, you know, this, uh, this atheist, this profane atheist comes by and he picks the guy up and takes him, you know, and all that kind of thing. You know, it's like it, to say the good Samaritan to a Jew is like saying the good Nazi to those Jews. Would have, that would have been how, the, how Jesus parable. So it was a shocking thing because of how, how, how much the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other uh, going back over many, many years. So here is uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Here's Mount Gerizim on the left. We're looking uh, west here, and here's Mount Ebal over here. This is where they said the blessings and cursings when they come to the land, but Here's Mount Gerizim, and down here in this area is Shechem. Now, right over here is Nablus. This is where Yasser Arafat had his headquarters. Uh, when Pansy and I can't, went here in 2000, we were, we were able to go in, go in through here, but you can't get up there now, but we were able to go into here. And, and we went down to she Old Testament Shechem, which is right here. It was very uncomfortable because we were surrounded by a lot of uh, Arab people there uh, with guns, <laughs> and it was, it was, uh, it was uncomfortable. We didn't stay too long, but we wanted to see the remains of Old Testament Shechem. Shechem, you remember, is where, when Abraham comes into the land of Canaan in Genesis, that's where he goes first to Shechem, and he builds an altar there. Jacob comes back. You know, when he comes back in the land, he goes to Shechem and builds, uh, buys some land, builds an altar. So it's an important site. But there's Mount Gerizim there, um, the summit here. 
And this is where the Samaritans built that temple. And uh, the Samaritans uh, still uh, celebrate a, a Passover there. They have priests and uh, they have a religion. There is, according to the latest statistics I have, about 818 Samaritans left. Half live on Mount Gerizim here and half live near Tel Aviv. Uh, they've had a, a big problem with intermarriage, and that's created genetic problems, genetic defects. So they have debated about whether to intermarry, and I've heard different stories. They do, they have let Jews intermarry with Jews, but these Jewish women have to become Samaritans in a sense. I've heard that they've looked outside there, I'm not sure, but um, here they are in the square, and they do celebrate uh, Passover here. Here they are celebrating Passover, the slaying of the lambs each year. It's hard to, you really can't get up there and get see anything. They don't really allow anybody up, but they're allowed to, to celebrate uh, their Passover up there on uh, Mount Gerizim. All right, let's talk about Jewish sex. So the Samaritans, uh, we could say, are kind of Jewish. Uh, they claim to be Jewish, claim to be descendant, and they are partly, certainly they're an intermarriage of Jews that remained and people who came in, Gentiles who came in. But let's talk about the Jewish sects. Uh, first, we'll talk about the Sadducees. And um, they are so named because they claim to be descended from Zadok, uh, the high priest at the time of King David and King Solomon. They consisted of the wealthy aristocratic families who controlled the office of high priest and controlled the temple. Josephus, the Jewish historian, claims they were unfriendly even to one another. Um, I thought I would say, you know, and maybe I should have put some more about this in the notes, but I thought I would say for a moment a little bit about um, Josephus, because I, we've mentioned Josephus before, and uh, he is a quite an important figure. He's a, his, we think of him as a historian, because we have books that he wrote. Uh, his, name, his, na his name is technically is Flavius Josephus, and that's a Roman name, Flavius Josephus. Now, he wasn't, uh, his, his, um, his father, was named Mattathias, the same as the guy who started the Maccabean revolt. And Josephus himself was a priestly nobility. And related, you know, with that, his father, his name was Mattathias, he was related to the Hasmonean family, the royal Hasmonean family, through his mother. Now, when he was born, his original name was Joseph, just like Mary and Joseph, really a Hebrew name. But he later uh, called himself Flavius Josephus. So he changed his name Joseph to a Roman ending, Josephus. And he picked up this Flavius name. Now, this Flavius is the family name of the Roman emperors who were his patrons. So Romans have three names, like Gaius, Julius, Caesar. The middle name is called the Noman. It's the family name. So if, if I put my name as a Roman, it would be Combs William, Combs Bill or something, you know. So um, 
he took the name Flavius because that was the, the name, family name of two emperors uh, that we have mentioned before, Caliglia and Claudius. And he was, uh, he was uh, helped by them and they, were, they encouraged him and supported him and so forth. So he took that Roman name. Uh, he was born around 37, uh, year 37. So, you know, after Jesus died, <clears throat> born after Jesus died and died around the year 100. Now he, he, he did all kinds of things. He, he studied as a student. He, as a, as a sect, sectarian Jew, he was a kind of a statesman. He was a military officer but then he betrayed his country <laughs> and he was, became a historian and kind of an apologist for the Jews. So he, he had a lot of different roles in his life. Now, according to what he says, he has a biography that he wrote and he said that he was very smart when he was 14 years old, that even the rabbis consulted him. And so he began to study the three common sects that he, uh, that he, were, were prominent in his day. The Sadducees that we're, gonna, we're talking about now, the Pharisees, which we know of, and the Essenes, <clears throat> which we'll talk about. And he studied those for a number of years. And for a number of years, at least three years, he lived out as an ascetic, like a monk in the wilderness with a, with a hermit. But then he decided to become a Pharisee. So he joined the Pharisaic tradition. Uh, in the... Uh, the year 64, this is right before the first Jewish war in 66 to 70 that we talked about last week, he went to Rome and he was able to obtain some freedom for some various priests who had been imprisoned there. And he was really impressed with Rome. He was just infatuated with it. But he got back to Judea and he found out his country, you know, is at war with Rome because they're rebelling, 66, revolt we talked about. And, uh, he tried to steer his nation, the Judea, in the right direction because he had seen the power of Rome and he thought, well, this is foolish. Uh, but he was a bright guy and a brilliant guy. And so in, when he was only 29 years old, he was placed in charge of preparing Galilee for the Roman invasion. He was, uh, you know, they, they wanted him to, to help them and so forth. Well, in 67, the Rome, Romans have in, arrived in Galilee and Josephus tried to stop them. They had a Jewish army. He was, he was a soldier uh, and a general, <laughs> like. And uh, so his soldiers preferred to die rather than, you know, be captured by the Romans. So they made a pact for a, max, a, a mass suicide. Um, and so everybody killed themselves except Joseph and his uh, Josephus and his companion, <laughs> and uh, they decided not to kill themselves and they surrendered to the Romans. And so he was brought before Vespasian. Remember that Nero sent Vespasian down uh, to uh, Judea to conquer the uh, Jews who had revolted in '66. Remember, we said the Jews were successful at first and embarrassed the Romans at Beth Horn with that tremendous victory they had. So they sent, so Nero sent a bunch of Roman legions with Vespasian, general, down there to quell this, this, this uh, thing. And so uh, 
when Vespasian comes into the country, he comes north, he comes into the north first, Galilee, <clears throat> before he gets to Jerusalem. So uh, he comes before Vespasian, and for some reason, Josephus predicts that one day Vespasian would become emperor. And so Vespasian sort of liked that, and he kept Josephus as a captive. So as things go on, you remember, uh, Nero uh, died, killed himself ultimately, he was overthrown, and Vespasian rushes back to Rome, and he does become emperor. And so um, eventually Vespasian is declared, you know, emperor, and he goes back to Rome, and he liberates Josephus when he's declared emperor by his troops, and he goes back, he, he liberates Josephus, and Josephus accompanies him as far as Alexandria, as he goes there first, <clears throat> and helps, uh, helps Vespasian's son, Titus, who's in Alexandria. And he comes back with Titus to Jerusalem to finish off the Jews, finish off his people. And Josephus acts as an interpreter and mediator between the forces. Uh, he was wounded, and he saw the overthrow of his own nation that he had betrayed in AD 70. And after the war, he is taken by Rome, taken to Rome by Titus. Remember, Titus is Vespasian's sons, and he son in AD 70, he conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and so forth. And Titus eventually, you know, of course, becomes emperor himself. And so under Titus, Vespa, uh, Josephus lived a very good life at court. He was granted a villa to stay in and money to live on. And so he spent his time writing. And that's what he did to the end of his life, apparently to the year 100, AD 100. His writings have been preserved, especially by Christians, because they contribute a lot of historical knowledge. They're about the only source outside the Bible that mentions a lot of things in the New Testament. Like it mentions, talks about Jesus, Josephus does. He talks about John the Baptist. He talks about the death of James in Acts chapter 12 and so forth. And so, uh, you know, his, his source, his uh, references were seen to be very valuable. Uh, he has two major works that we have been getting information from. One called the history of the Jewish war. So he wrote an extensive history of that that's considered his most important. He was on both sides of the struggle, first against the Romans and then with the Romans. And then he wrote a, a large set of books that says 20 books. It's not as, not as big as our books, but 20 sections called the Antiquities of the Jews. And uh, he traces the whole history of Judaism and so forth. And of course, that, that's where we get some information about, we talked about the Maccabean Revolt, a lot of that comes from the book of Maccabees, the Apocrypha that we'll talk about, but a lot of it comes from Josephus too. So he's a very important historian, thought to be you know, pretty reliable and so forth. And so I wanted to just kind of mention some things about him. Um, and so, um, um, Josephus says, I, I just wanted to say about Josephus here, one more thing about the Sadducees, um, that they were unfriendly even to one another. And that's why I wanted to mention about Josephus because 
he became a Pharisee. So, you know, maybe his views are tainted a little bit. It's, it's, it's hard to know that he has a kind of a fairly negative view of, of them. So I'm just mentioning that because of his background first as a Pharisee. Um, so they were, they, were, they were actually few in number, but they, the Sadducees uh, were, held the confidence of wealthy Jews, not the general populace, but the wealthy aristocratic Jews. Um, <clears throat> and so because they were not as popular, Josephus himself says that when they exercised their duties, they were forced to consider the views of the Pharisees because the Pharisees, he says, were more popular with the average person. They rejected, B here, uh, belief in angels and the resurrection. And remember, that's mentioned in Acts chapter 23, uh, particularly Acts chapter 23 and verse 8. This is, uh, we've talked about this before, this is when Paul comes back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And remember, we talked about how he's arrested in the temple, on the temple mount. Uh, he's accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple area itself, temple proper. And so there's a riot there. The Romans come in and try to, uh, I'll say the Roman, the Roman uh, soldiers come in and, and rescue him and take him back to the fortress. And they were gonna uh, examine him by torture, but remember they couldn't because he's a Roman. So the commander decides he's going to let him speak to the Sanhedrin and try to work this out and see what, what is the source of this conflict with this guy, you know, and what's going on here. And so in Acts 23, Paul is there before the Sanhedrin. And as Luke tells the story about that, uh, he says, it says, uh, Paul, uh, Luke says that in Acts 23, that when Paul saw that some of the people in the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, uh, he said this, he said, uh, he said, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a descendant of the Pharisees, and I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And then Luke says, well, when that happened, there was this great dispute that broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I don't know whether Paul did that on purpose or, or what, but uh, you know, then you get the, the two parties, the, the Sanhedrin fighting among itself. They start fighting. And Luke says there in, in uh, kind of parenthetical, the Sadducees say there is in verse eight, there is no resurrection. There are neither angels nor spirits, but the, Sadduc the Pharisees believe all these things. So uh, as far as we know, <clears throat> that's correct. Now, why am I saying some of these things is because we don't actually have any written documents that we can say were written by Sadducees. And I'll explain why that's true in just a second. Uh, everything we have really comes through the Pharisaic tradition and not as we, far as we know, not the Sadducean tradition. So we're depending upon them for what we know. But of course, now we have an inspired New Testament. So we know this part is right, at least, that they rejected belief in angels and the resurrection. But I say they were not necessarily liberal rationalists exactly, we might think. 
In one sense, they were conservative since they rejected the oral law of the Pharisees, what's called the tradition of the elders. So they had grown up with the study of the law, the Torah, the first five books, not only understanding and teaching that, but trying to explain it, trying to refine it and apply it. And there was an oral tradition. And the, the Pharisees held that this oral tradition was just as authoritative as the written uh, tradition, as the Torah itself. Now, that's a, that's a belief that's held in other religions too, like Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism holds tradition to be equal with Scripture. So it's not, it's not sola scriptura. Protestants like us believe in sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority, the ultimate authority, final authority, but not in Roman Catholicism. There's Scripture and there's tradition, and over both of them, of course, is the magisterium. The church determines what's scripture, what's tradition is correct, and so forth. But a lot of, a lot of religions have a tradition, too. Eastern Orthodox is like that, too. So tradition is very important. And the Pharisees were developing a, a tradition. Now, eventually, this tradition is, gets written down. <clears throat> it's called the Mishnah, and that's part of what's called the Talmud. And if you're a Jew today, if you're a Jewish rabbi, you study scripture, but you study the Talmud. You study the, or the tradition of the elders. And Jesus confronts this a lot of times. Uh, if you read, remember in the, in the Gospels, he's, conf, he's, he's having conflicts with the Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law. That would be scribes we uh, talk about in a moment. But in this one instance in Acts chapter 7, uh, the Pharisees and some of these teachers, uh, they come and ask Jesus why his disciples eat with their hands when they're defiled. That is, they don't wash their hands. They don't do this ritual, ritual purification. They don't go through this ritual purification with their hands and so forth. It's not so much physical dirt. It's this ritual purification that they're not going through, that they have developed as a tradition. Uh, and, and Mark says they don't really eat anything unless they go through this ceremony of washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Um, and they have this tradition about dishes and everything else. Um, and so they asked Jesus, why do your disciples live, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? And, and Jesus goes on to disassociate himself uh, numerous times with that tradition as not being binding. Uh, the, so, so the Pharisees rejected that oral tradition. We'll talk about in, in more with the Pharisees here. Um, the Sadducees rejected predestination in order to dissociate God from evil and to assert the human free choice of good or evil. Um, they were open to more Hellenistic influences. Remember we talked about we had this conflict from the Maccabean revolt because of these Hellenistic influences. Eventually the Maccabees themselves, the Hasmoneans became Hellenist and adopted those things. The Sadducees were more uh, open to those things and they were more politically oriented. Uh, they were concerned about politics and so forth. I say here by the time 
of the New Testament, the high priestly family and their Sadducean supporters appear to be in the majority in the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> the Sadducees were angered at Jesus teaching the temple, cleansing the temple, and his teaching on the resurrection. It was a Sadducean chief priest who condemned Jesus at a night trial and handed him over to Pilate. The Sadducees were primarily responsible for trying to suppress the preaching of Peter, remember in the book of Acts there, and the other apostles when they proclaimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. This was a real problem for them because this was in total opposition to their own religion and what they believed. <clears throat> now, the center of their religion was the temple. They were in charge of the temple. Uh, they controlled the temple, as we'll talk a little more about that later. And ultimately, when the temple was destroyed, the Sadducees left the scene. They didn't survive the destruction of AD 70. That form, that sect of Judaism did not survive, as well as the Essenes did not survive. The Romans destroyed uh, Qumran, as we'll see when they came down in the Jewish revolt. Let's talk a little bit about the Pharisees in the time we have remaining here. The name of the Pharisees literally means separated ones. Their roots go back to the movement called the Hasidim. And we talked about this with, with Mattathias, the priest who killed Antiochus' agent because you know um, he was combating the Hellenistic influence of the Syrians. And there were these people who were separated ones, pure, wanted to observe the law, didn't want any Hellenistic influences. And so their roots go back to these Hasidim, who with the Maccabees opposed attempts to introduce Hellenism, Jewish culture in the second century. Later, they opposed the Maccabees when they combined secular and religious all. So remember, the Maccabees started off, Judas, Simon, Jonathan, they start off, they start off as... Um, Pharisees, that's who's with them. That's who they, that, that, those are the two groups, the Maccabees and the, and the Hasidim. But then as the uh, Hasmoneans become a real dynasty and gain land and power king, uh, they uh, switch over and become more Hellenistic themselves and they are opposed by the Pharisees. And so you have a, a going back and forth there with the Pharisees. Um, remember we, um, well, Josephus, I, I was going to say, Josephus says about the Pharisees, remember he was at least a Pharisee for a while. He says, uh, he has a very positive description of them. He says that they were lived a kind of a simple lifestyle. They maintain a simple lifestyle in, in comparison to the Sadducees and so forth. He says they were very affectionate, very harmonious to one another in their dealings, especially respectful to elders, and they were quite influential in the land of Israel. Uh, at the time of Herod, there were about 6,000 Pharisees scattered throughout the land. And as I said, Josephus' uh, sympathies certainly side with the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in both divine sovereignty and human will, as well as their belief in the immortality of both good and evil persons. They firmly believed in the resurrection and thus classed with the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees were mainly priests concerned with temple worship practices. The Pharisees were mostly laymen, but their leaders were primarily scribes who interpreted the scriptures according to the oral law, tradition of the elders, or Hebrew halakha, which they held was as ancient as the written law. So they said when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he also, he also gave an oral law, and that was passed down orally as a tradition. Their concern interpreting the law, the Torah, was first to apply the eternal law to the changing circumstances of the day by means of elaborate arguments. Second, they sought to make a hedge around the law, that is to take precautions to prevent the breaking of the law. For example, if the law said, if in the Old Testament law it says, a task has to be completed by morning, they would go a step further and say, you have to complete that by midnight the day before, because you might forget. So if it says morning, then we're, we're going to add to that and say, you got to do it by midnight. Now there's a Sabbath command. You can't work on the Sabbath. So they would say things like, well, you know, people who work on clothes, you've seen tailors, people who tailor clothes. Sometimes they have needles stuck in their clothes. They have pins or needles and so forth. They would say uh, that a tailor could not do that on Friday. Friday's, Friday night's a Sabbath. And so he can't put any needles into his garments like he might when he's doing his tailoring because he might forget that they're in there and carry his tools with him on the Sabbath and break the Sabbath law. One final thing about the Pharisees, and we'll stop here. One of the most famous Pharisees was a scribe uh, named Hillel. Now, the, I'm not certain about his dates here. I've looked at a lot of sources here. If you look at those dates, that's like 120 years. <laughs> but it's, it's just kind of unclear. It's pretty certain he died at 10, uh, 10 AD. But uh, his birth date, his birth is given by different people different, different years. So his, the most famous was Hillel. Hillel's son, maybe his grandson, was Gamaliel. He was the most famous rabbi of his day, and that's Paul's day. The apostle Paul studied under him and was, until his conversion to Christianity, a zealously sincere Pharisee. Remember, Paul says in a couple of places that he studied under Gamaliel, the leading uh, rabbi, the leading scribe, the leading Pharisee of the day. The Pharisees were opposed to the revolutionary policy of the zealots. Remember, 67, the zealots are leading this uprising. The Pharisee leader, Johann ben Zakkai, secured permission before AD 70 from the Emperor Vespasian to open a rabbinical school at Jamnia near Jaffa on the coast, Mediterranean, which enabled Pharisaism to survive the Jewish-Roman War. The Sadducees didn't survive. After the failed revolution of Bar Kokhba, remember there was a first revolution, uh, AD 70, AD 66 to 70, the temple is destroyed, but Pharisaism continues on. He's allowed to open a school in, Jam in Jamnia near Jaffa. 
preserving the scriptures and teaching, you know. Uh, then there was the second revolution, remember, of Bar Kokhba, uh, when Hadrian comes in and makes Jerusalem a Gentile city, and we talked about that last time. After that revolution, the Romans recognized Pharisees as the governing body for Jewish life. So it's generally agreed that the Pharisees are the progenitors of rabbinic Judaism in the Middle Ages. You probably heard the term rabbinic Judaism the Judaism in the Middle Ages. Well, that Judaism is really an outgrowth of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, as far as we know, are responsible for the Judaism we have today. That's why today we have all Judaism, all sects of Judaism. We have in America three different, uh, we have Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, but they all recognize uh, both the written law and the Talmud or the oral law, but that was written down about the year 200. They started writing this oral law down. And so you study it in written form and so forth. And so uh, the Pharisees are obviously very important for that reason. Well, uh, I guess I talked too much here. <laughs> so we will stop here for tonight and we will come back next week and talk about as scenes. Uh, let me close that. Any questions? Our oven has a Sabbath setting, and I never looked at what that meant. The what? It has some kind of Sabbath setting on it. 